Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the CPA Advisory Show. My name is Chris Herbershon. I am here with my co-host, Jeremy Wells. Jeremy, how's it going? Doing all right, Chris. How are you? Oh, never better. And today we have got our first ever repeat guest. Very excited about that. We've got Michael Myhouse back for another episode. And today what we are going to be talking about is offshoring because you've got specific experience in that, Michael. So Michael, how are you doing today? Great. Yeah. Excited to be back. And I'm excited to talk about this topic. Uh, the last episode was a blast and this one is something near and dear to my heart. So looking forward to it. Awesome. Love that. Um, so I know specifically in our firm, we have offshored a little bit. We use TOA Global for that for an accountant. It's gone really, really well. It's been an interesting experience. Jeremy, I know you've had a similar experience. Is that right? That's right. I have used uh, one service in particular. I, I've used a couple different uh, services for uh, contracting with people and, and hiring, um, but I've used one offshore service. And it's been overall good. There have been a couple of hiccups here and there, but especially with return to office, things like that. But overall, it's been a good experience for me. Awesome. So Michael, you've actually gone overseas and set up these offices of offshore teams. What are the things that we need to know? What are the things that we need to be thinking about? How does this work? Give us the skinny. Yeah. And so it, it was neat. I was able to do it as part of a larger firm's initiative. So it wasn't, it wasn't me. I was like the second wave. Um, so a little bit of backstory was the firm that I worked at prior to starting my own firm had had employees in India for several years, I think close to actually 15 years, but it had never been invested in or prioritized just because there was other focuses for the firm. At one point though, there were a couple of partners and a couple of managers that were really interested in how do we distribute work better throughout the firm. And obviously it's really hard to add 10 staff headcount here in the US overnight, uh, just from a financial perspective and a tight labor market perspective. So we started to explore like, hey, how do we utilize our team members we already have in India better? So they started that with um, some of our construction reviews, which are typically higher level analytics, a lot of repeatable processes, not a ton of detail transaction testing. So it's a little bit easier to kick it off right off the bat. So they started that, the construction niche did. I used to work in construction tactics. So I saw this happening while I was getting buried in an employee benefit plan audit work during the summer. And I said, hey, if we're going to start hiring a lot of people for the traditional April busy season, we'll have people who have dead time in the summer, right? Partner I was working with said, yeah, absolutely. I said, let's move some of this EBP work over to India so that we can keep them busy during the summer and honestly get, get some of this work off my back because I was getting slammed in the summer. So that's what really started us off on that path was we already were growing a team for another purpose and I saw an opportunity to utilize their time in the summer. And it, it was essentially a model that would allow us to smooth hours, right? If you hire enough people that you only have to work 40 hours a week during busy season, you still need a way to keep them busy or to generate revenue in the summer. So I saw these as compatible business lines, essentially, uh, if we could train our India team on both. So that's what we started out with. I think the other question you asked was things that you should know. And I really like what you said, Jeremy, was we, we had some adjustments or some challenges, and that's the first and most important thing I think for people to realize when they start doing this is there will be an adjustment phase, there will be problems. And what I saw personally was people would judge whether or not outsourcing, offshoring, working with overseas teams worked based off of the initial experience. Well, I had a bad time. They didn't respond. They did poor work. That happens in the US as well. That happens when somebody's sitting next to you. It happens when you outsource or contract in the United States. It's not unique to 
offshoring. What is unique is that offshoring needs a specific level of intentionality in order to actually have it work. So that's the first thing is if you're going to do this, you have to expect there will be an adjustment phase. If you go into it because you hear a lot of people on Twitter talking about how amazing it is, which it is, and you expect that from day one, that's what your experience is going to be. It probably won't be. And that's, I think, where people get really disillusioned with the process. So that would be the first big one. Um, that I would say to watch out for is to understand that it takes a large investment of time and process and, and building relationships to actually kick off. We can go into more detail. I don't know if you, either of you had thoughts on that as well with your experiences. Yeah, I would have to agree with that uh, assessment because um, first of all, if you, like you said, if you just think about the perspective of hiring someone onshore into your firm, there's going to be an adjustment period. There's going to be an onboarding phase. There's going to be some training, right? Even if you bring in somebody experienced in the technical work, you're still going to have to onboard them and train them in your processes, your ways of doing things, your firm's culture, right? Those kinds of things. And then on top of that, you've got to account for the fact that it's an entirely different jurisdiction, an entirely different culture. Um, you know, it, there might be a little bit of a, of a language issue, although, you know, there, there's going to be understanding of, uh, you know, maybe the language in uh, technical and roundabout ways, but there's still going to be the issues with, you know, euphemisms and, and sort of ad lib language, the way we talk to each other, right, when we're working together. Um, there's going to be a lot of that kind of stuff. And then, you know, I understand that, through the services that I've used, for example, like even if there's some basic training that they go through before they're handed over to you, that's still just barely going to scratch the surface. I mean, you're talking the equivalent of somebody who's gone through like an undergraduate accounting program. Now, all of a sudden, this person is a member of your team. Like there's still a lot of, you know, training that's got to go into that. So that, that definitely was, uh, you know, something that I uh, ran into when I had my first hire was this person can start doing some of the technical work from day one, but they're not going to be a, they're not going to be at 100% capacity, like on day one, probably not even through the first month or two, right? Like it's going to take a while to integrate that person into the processes. And I think you almost never get even a technical experienced person to be that day one. If you think about it, you hire a really technical senior manager. Yeah. They understand the tax law, hopefully, or they understand <clears throat> audit or accounting. But they don't understand your systems. They don't understand internal processes. There's an adjustment phase, regardless. Nuances of the client is a is a big one um, that I that I found right. You know that sometimes with a client, there's just certain transactions that because you've worked with the client for a year, you know that recurring transaction every month and how it works. But then to them, it's completely foreign, right? So there's always those little those little on a client level and then on a firm level. Yeah, we've had a similar experience and. We've been working with an offshore staff member for about five months now. And through a series of very unfortunate, non-controllable, mostly COVID-related circumstances, uh, we just weren't able to train that staff member as quickly as we wanted to. And we saw the effects of that. But understanding that this is what is causing that issue and just giving everybody involved, including myself, just some grace, you know, that was super important. Like... The person who was supposed to train him went out on leave earlier than anticipated. He started a little bit late, um, you know, took a little bit of time to recruit him in the first place, like those sorts of things, you know, those were the challenge. So what we really found was the intentionality, having things documented, having actual one-to-one -one training, super, super important. Um, but then other than, other than that, the culture barrier is something that you kind of have to get past. So even like 20 minutes ago, we were on a team meeting and I, you know, the, 
that team member presented something that just totally blew my mind. And don't judge me, but my comment to that was, that is bananas. And he said, what does that mean? And I was like, I don't know how to explain that. Can somebody help me here? <laughs> right? And so just trying to think of a way to explain um, just that slang to somebody else without actually using more slang. Like those are the things that you need to be really intentional about. And, you know, they crop up from time to time. So that's kind of been our experience. It's so true because I've, I've had the chance to work with people, not, not in a work setting, but like a personal setting as well in China and in India and a few other places where there's high English competency, meaning we had great conversations, we spoke, but you're 100% right that you recognize how much of your language is slang when you speak to someone who's had like an academic training in English. So they've gone to a university and gotten an English degree, speak wonderful mm -hmm. English, but they use what I'd call correct English. Whereas I'm like SoCal surfer <laughs> slang, trying to be sophisticated English. It's just a, a weird mashup, but that's exactly it. You'll say a hundred things and you'll realize that 80% of them were some idiot, some colloquialism, some regional slang even. And you got to understand that while you're commuting with them. So one of the things that struck me in, in kind of that opening dialogue that you mentioned, uh, well, actually two things, number one, repeatable, number two, not detailed. So what's your recommendation around what level of work you can kind of send overseas from a detail perspective, things that are not necessarily one-off things that are repeatable. Yeah. So if you wanted to get your feet wet in outsourcing, I would recommend first and foremost, looking at your own processes, because I think it's outsourcing is a really good mirror for how good your firm is at training and standardizing because being in an office is accidental training and relationship building. And we learned in COVID that when we lose the office, you really find out who the super effective managers, relationship builders, and trainers are. And you learn who the people that just kind of did it as a happenstance of being in the office with people. So that's the first piece I would say is if you don't have really good repeatable processes or at least general training guides, you're going to run into some problems. It's really helpful to start with those. So I'd say first, if you're right now, you say, I want to have an outsource employee by 1-1-2023, make sure your processes are standardized. Make sure you have strong templates. Make sure that you have some degree of training and training doesn't have to be fancy. A simple example of what training could be is next time I do a task I commonly do, I'm gonna pull up my webcam, I'm gonna pull up Loom, I'm gonna record myself doing it and give some very basic commentary. Honestly, the commentary doesn't have to be that good. If they can just see you click on the screen over and over, that's an example of training. So that'd be the first step. Make sure your processes are ready for hiring. And that hiring is not offshore, onshore. It's hiring, period. You're not an effective hire if you don't have those things. After that, I would ask myself, what are the most repeatable, easy to train, and lowest likelihood of causing a major error and start people there, right? You want to give them the ability to work confidently without giving them the highest risk, highest value tasks, right? If, if they aren't familiar with auditing, I'm not going to have them drafting the financial statements from day one. That just probably wouldn't be a great place to be. It'd be a lot of headaches. Doing reconciliations, verifying documents, checking basic dates, that's an awesome place to start. The third part is I would think about how are you going to intentionally build a relationship with people? Because I think it's a little bit tempting to almost view them as like work producing assets and forget that they're literal people because often it's emails. We're not sitting in an office with them. We don't go to lunch with them as easily. So just remember that they're a person. They might have a family you know, of their own. They have extended family for sure. They have joys and interests and things they love and appreciate about life. And so 
that human element is so critical to building an environment where they feel like a part of the team and want to participate in it. I had the blessing of being able to go over to India three times, and I will tell you there was nothing like training in person, just spending a couple weeks there, having them take you to their restaurants, take you around. I got taken around Mumbai by the team, and it was unbelievable. And the relationship you build for that, it it's really hard to beat. So I'm not uh, like a forever remote maximalist. I think you need to be intentional if you're going to do that. But I would recommend if you ever can to go overseas and meet your team when it makes sense, right? You can't go overseas every time if you have one employee. It's, it's a pretty significant time and cost uh, investment. But if you can do it or you have a team of five or 10 people, then I'd say a trip out there is probably the most valuable thing you'll ever do for your team out there. That's awesome. What do, apart from standardization and training, what are the most common problems that you see? Standardization. Uh, I think it's often not investing the upfront time to give them review comments. And this is something I think that's very common in the industry anyway. You'll say, oh, an intern's making the same mistakes over and over and over. Well, did you tell them about it? No, I'm too busy. I just fixed it this time. It's like, oh, well, shocking. But people who don't know how to do things and never get told how to do things will probably continue to do those things wrong. Um, so you have to have a, a major commitment to, to giving someone leadership of this to give them comments. So a few ways I did this to not have a massive time suck. We, we were running like a team of 20 people out there um, towards the end of my time at my last firm. And so that was, I couldn't individually invest in each of those people while doing other things. So I had people below me that were training and giving review comments. But what I did was I just made a common list of errors that I would send out weekly. I had a major list and then I would send out updates weekly. And so it was really a great tool for people to see, oh, these are mistakes that my colleagues are making. I haven't made those yet, but now I'll watch out for them. Or we had a descriptive um, process sheet that said, hey, here's how things should flow. And if they aren't flowing this way, let us know so we can anticipate issues. So I think a way of anticipating issues is a big part of that process, not just the templates, but when things break inevitably, how will you fix those things? I think something that's common between that about you know, giving feedback and, and, you know, trying to uh, help your uh, staff, whether they're offshore or onshore improve, right. In, in what they're doing along with an earlier point you made about treating them like people, right. Even if they're not in your office every day, like recognizing that they're still individuals, they still have lives outside the office, things like that. Um, you know, I, I think that's critical and, and it's, it gets beyond just, this is, a service we're outsourcing to, right? Or, or we're just, you know, sending off the work and then it comes back done. And, uh, you know, what I found with mine is just the same basic management principles that we teach for in-office staff, you know, it, it also works. So uh, I've, ever since I've had uh, an offshore employee, I've uh, done weekly one-on-ones with them, right? Just a quick 30 minutes, uh, they get the first few minutes, uh, I always open them with the same question and, you know, use whatever question you want, but I just open with what's on your mind. Right. And it, and it just makes it to where it's up to them to uh, lay out something that's bothering them, something that they're excited about, right. Whatever it is, business, personal work, you know, and, and it, that has been really helpful. Uh, there have been times where I've gotten a little bit of a glimpse into their personal lives just enough to where like, it's what they want to share with me. I'm not prying into anything. Um, but at the same time, you know, it makes them feel open 
And one thing that consistently comes back when I have the conversations with my account manager, because they're doing reviews with their HR on me, the same way they're asking me to review them, right? Is they come back very appreciative of those one-on-ones. They come back appreciative of the, of the openness and being able to talk about what's going on in their lives, what their concerns are, you know, get feedback on their work. And it's almost like there, there's this fear, right? Uh, say, I think it's a very similar talking to our staff and talking to our clients, right? There's this fear that if we actually give them some space to talk about what's on their mind, that it's just going to be awful, right? Like they're going to hate us. They're not going to like us, whatever. But I always find the opposite, right? When, when I get a client and I, and I get them to feel like they have the openness and they have the, the, to, to be a little vulnerable and same thing with staff, then it usually ends up being yeah. a pretty positive experience for everyone involved. So Michael, you've actually built an offshore team and you've built an onshore team. And I'm curious as to what's the difference in recruiting? How does that work? What does it look like? What are some of the nuances? That was one of the things that was really cool is once you kind of get over that initial hump of finding the first few people and our situation was different because we didn't have, um, like with Toa, they actually have a recruitment department and they bring in candidates. So, so once our team got experienced, they started doing the recruiting, like literally like you would do it here, going to colleges, posting job fairs, having interviews. It was awesome. I think our office was getting towards 70 or 80 people when I left. So we had a whole function overseas there. And so I didn't do a ton of the hiring for that first wave. I did mostly on the training side, but it was very similar to what you'd see here. It's just the interesting nuances of what makes a good worker, you know, what are the personality traits that you'd want for this office versus another one. There used to be a joke that uh, there's significant differences on stateside between the offices. There was like the very professional, calm, collected office. And then there was like the wild insanity, young professional office near our colleges, which it was a lot of fun. It was a loud, boisterous office, one of our most productive, but just it was a very different experience. So you have to understand those nuances over overseas as well. So who's going to be a good culture fit? We focused a lot on that is forget less about technical skills uh, or forget about technical skills as much. Most of them are college graduates or going for their CA, their chartered accountant. And we more looked at who has the culture fit, who's going to be part of this team because you can train them. And, and that's my thesis with everything. I would rather hire an admin or an intern who really, really wants to work than I would a senior manager or super experienced person um, who is a question mark in terms of how they want to be a part of a team. I'm, I'm big on culture fit and then training people up how you'd like them to work in your particular context. So I, from my perspective, it was very similar to, to answer your original question. Obviously, massive cultural differences in terms of like how that, how you do that, what it looks like, the offices, but similar idea of you have your funnel through college, you have some turnover as people go to different opportunities or leave. And there's some very interesting nuances with HR, like worker protections, are, are, it's wild there. Like the HR, the things you can ask, it's like, oh, when are you going to get married? When are you going to move away? When are you going to, this is all like legal stuff that's asked everywhere because of various cultural nuances there. It's just wild there. I was like, you're not allowed to ask that. And they were explaining, no, you're actually very much allowed to ask that. And I was like, this is wild. California would literally have a heart attack if they heard these questions. So uh, it was, it was interesting in that perspective that HR laws, employment protection laws are radically different overseas. So you have to accept that you can make your own personal choices when you run your company about how you approach that. But it, there are some radical cultural employment law nuances that are different over there, but the recruitment was pretty familiar, thankfully. 
Well, what about on the flip side of that? So that that's in protection on the employee side. What about protection on the firms and, and the client side? So I'm thinking mm -hmm. about like data protection issues and privacy issues and all those kinds of things, because I think that's going to be one of the most probably consistent and strongest objections to uh, this is, is now, you know, not only are you trying to figure out how to protect all this data within your own firm server or systems, but now you're putting all that data into servers and systems halfway around the world. What's what, you know, what are the implications there and what did you do and what would a firm owner need to think about in order to do that the right way? Yeah, that's a great question. And I want to highlight one thing and then I'll answer the question is remember that there are different regulatory requirements if you work in tax. So bookkeeping is a little bit easier, audits a little easier. There are required disclosures in your terms and conditions, usually like third party contractors. But with tax specifically, there are certain forms that like explicitly say your information is going overseas and you need to know it's going overseas and you need to look at this form and sign it. So just for anyone listening to this that's considering it, make sure you work with a lawyer or some sort of regulatory body to understand what your requirements are for sending work to, uh, overseas anywhere. Um, if you're doing tax specifically, it's a little bit different bookkeeping and, and accounting. Always recommend working with a lawyer anyway. To answer that though, Data security is a big part. I would say it's less, it's more of a boogeyman in people's mind than it is a reality because most of your data is probably overseas already. You know, if you've ever called a Citibank, a Chase, uh, any major bank support line, it's probably somewhere overseas. They're pulling up your account numbers. Um, most most customer support roles are overseas in some way or another. That's more of an exception when they're not. So that's first is when you have client pushback is to recognize that, yeah, that probably your data is in like 50 million different servers across the world. The second part though, is, is it's a legitimate concern. I think we should be concerned about data security period with all of our vendors. So the, the way I would split this is if you're working with a credible organization, like an outsourcing organization with a good track record that manages your IT security, that's, that's kind of an easier path to go. If, you, if you're a small, unsophisticated, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but sophistication in terms of you don't have a chief technology offer, uh, officer, you don't have an information security specialist on your team then I would say going with one of these outsource providers is a great way to start. It can be tempting to work with one of those LinkedIn DM messengers that says, hey, I'm starting this practice. I can arrange outsource bookkeeping for you. That might be great. They might be cheaper than one of these managed providers like um, TOA, but you also have to question, how am I going to be feeling comfortable about that IT security for a single contractor or a single organization that I don't have much background on? So that's the first part is if you're a unsophisticated um, technologically in your firm, go with like a larger provider to get your feet wet. If you love it and you're like, I wanna have 50 employees over here long-term, great, maybe then you consider running your own office. For my company, my former company rather, they had a sophisticated IT department. We had an IT manager on site in India. We had all of your typical encryption practices. Cell phones weren't allowed on in the office, they were all uh, in the break room. And so there's just your typical ways of preventing data loss. That's normal, you know, lockdown computers that only access work material. There wasn't like outside internet access other than a few places that you had to go, Department of Labor websites, anything like that. So it's just, it ultimately is a best practices in general for your firm is more important than how do I do best practices for the ERC. This, this is something I, I wanna highlight is so often it becomes, this discussion becomes, well, how am I supposed to do that overseas? And the answer should be, well, you should already be doing it here with slight modifications, AKA, well, what do you mean I have to have this in my engagement letter? I don't have engagement letters. Well, that's, that's a bigger problem than which 
which line do we put in your engagement letter? Or I don't know how to train and, and mentor and build up staff. It's like, well, it's not that much different doing it on the internet than it is doing it in person. You just have to be more intentional about it. Or uh, I can't, uh, data security, it'd, it'd be unsafe overseas. Well, is it safe here onshore? Because if, if you're not confident on that, then it's not an issue of onshore, offshore. It's an issue of where's your firm at in all of these processes. Wait, here's one thing that I struggle with. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you think about this. If you're going to use a big offshore provider and their candidates are screened and they go through a recruitment process and they basically just feed them to you and you, you don't get maybe as many cracks of the apple, so to speak, in putting them through your own hiring process and screening process and things like that. What are some of the questions that you would be asking that maybe would be a little bit different than recruiting somebody who's onshore, who's gone through your specific screening process? Yeah, I think I would just try to understand who they are personally as much as is appropriate in a business setting and professionally. So when I, I did a lot of recruiting stateside and again, onshore, offshore, I just try to push people off their scripts. What, I, what I've come to learn about recruiting is every interviewee you talk to has a script. And if you can shove them off that script and just get them off balance a little bit politely, nothing rude, nothing you know that can sound a certain way, but it's just, I want them to start giving me answers that aren't prepared. That's my goal in any interview. I found that really helps you see the person. My favorite are try to get them to speak negatively about a prior employer or give them an opportunity to speak negatively about a prior employer and how they handle that delicately is big. Um, I always force them to tell me what they're bad at. There's no like, tell me the positives of your weakness. Uh, it's like, what are you the worst at? It was one of my favorite questions because there's no way to make that better. You know, if you're, if it's the thing you're the worst at, uh, I want some honesty there. Um, just, I would talk, uh, try to keep it casual and open and then just understand who they are as a person and, and get them off their script. That's what I found to be particularly helpful because how else do you know? We've had some people that just shined on interviews that were, uh, didn't, didn't end up working out the way we hoped them to be onshore, offshore, both of them. And then there were people that were just kind of the not great interviewers, but absolute superstars on work. So I think interviewing is a very hard thing to do well. So the more you can get a real look at the person, uh, the easier it's going to go. Interesting. I love that perspective. Uh, how about as far as the CA, so the chartered accountant and how that translates into what we would consider to be CPA sort of work. Uh, what's yeah. your experience been there? I think they typically would do both. Um, so CA I think is much more prevalent globally and then CPA is more common with us in the, in the States. So they would typically do both because you know, obviously offshoring is becoming such a, a large industry in, in India and I have no experience with the Philippines. So I want to, I want to note that only India right now. So long-term I'll probably be working in the Philippines, but my experience is limited to India. So I, I think it's, I can't speak to it, but I, my impression was it's a similar situation. You take the exams. I don't think the CA probably just like the CPA relates that much to actual professional capability or, or knowledge. It's mostly like, did you pass the exam? And I think it's worthwhile. Like, like I said, I probably, I, yeah, I'll be careful how I say it, but I think it's more of like a designation than it is an actual test of skill. So it's similar to a lot of things. Does the bar exam actually show how good of a lawyer you'll actually be in practice? Probably not, but they're required, you know, to, to pass a particular set of, uh, set of requirements. So I didn't see a particular difference. Most of our people were hired prior to actually finishing the CA. I think there's promotion opportunities and pay increases that came with it, similar with the CPA. But my perspective is, I think an admin person with 
project management experience often could be a more effective employee than even somebody with a CPA or a CA, which is interesting. It's asking those bigger questions of what skill sets does somebody actually need to succeed, I, th I think. But all of our people got it. We encourage them to get it. It's kind of the standard professional designation, but that's a whole nother rabbit trail. That's a whole nother Ponzi scheme-like conversation that'll get me in trouble someday, but. <laughs> <laughs> Functional offshore Ponzi scheme. Yeah, now we just got to add the offshore element. Got to diversify your risk, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because you, you know, your your experience was solely in India. Mine has solely been with the Philippines, and I, I I'm just wondering what the future of hiring for professional services is. Right? I mean, I I think that's really what the the sort of unifying theme here is throughout all of these conversations about. You know, where do we find staff? How do we do capacity planning? How do we find people to do the work? Because the work is only going to get more in terms of volume and more in terms of complexity, right? And there's always going to be the need for qualified, capable, experienced people. But at the same time, you know, no matter how much automation we get, there's still going to need to be that group of, first of all, you know, candidates to become those experienced, you know, qualified uh, professionals, but then also people to just do the, the, do the more basic level work. And I, I don't think you can, I, I think it's going to get to a point to where we just have to admit that we can't keep building firms with purely onshore staff. Right. That for, for a variety yeah. of reasons, one is just the lack of labor. And then two, it just financially is going to make more and more sense, um, down the road because, you know, it, we can't keep offering opening salaries of 80, 90, hundred thousand to first year, you know, technical, uh, entry level workers. And maybe we can, if I can, this is, and I love the quite the way you framed it. Like what, what is what is this going to look like in the future? Is this going to be a requirement, right? Like, I'm sure there are people that are like, I'm not going to use computers. I've hand filled out returns my entire career. And it's like, <laughs> oh, oops, like they can do five times the return volume for less money. Like, I think that's coming. So I want to address a couple of concerns because I, I really, I, I think about this a lot and I am so passionate about how positive offshoring can be and not from like a purely like monocle top-headed capitalist view of like, I'm just going to rip off people in some other country. So the first big concern is like, you're paying people how much per hour? And this is probably the most misguided thing I've ever heard actually, because it, it is so culturally ignorant and so ignorant of the understanding that I think it, it just displays a lack, actually like a real lack of understanding when you say things like that. Like, just so people know, there are relative standards of living in the world. Like your salary here in the United States, even say you're like in Michigan and you're like, I have a really great upper middle-class salary might make you like literally poor in Dubai or Singapore. Like you might not be able to afford to live in those situations. And somebody who makes a Midwest salary somewhere else in the world might literally be in the top 0.5% of income. So it's really important to understand that the world is very different than the United States for people who are listening from the U S and if you're out of the U S you understand this. So that's critical number there. So for somebody to make a thousand dollars a month might be five times minimum wage. It might be over what a comparable position would be there with fewer hours and more flexibility. So that's the first part is when you think of, I can't morally pay someone only $12 an hour. Well, what if I told you that on average, their peers make $1 an hour. Now you're paying them 12 times as much. Like, sure. If your point is I'm going to pay people geographically agnostic, the same amount of money. Sure. But maybe paying somebody in the Philippines, $80,000 a year 
is a little bit overboard and wild, you know? And so that's the first part is don't, don't think of it in terms of that. If you're concerned about the wage rates, ask for compensation studies in the area. If a CA in Mumbai or Manila is making on average 15,000 US a, a year, and you're like, I want to be better than that. I'm going to give them 18,000 and a big bonus at the end of the year. Great. Like that's the part of being a business owner. That's awesome. But there's no moral issue. I think as long as you're paying livable, fair wages for a person that they're happy to receive over there. Second part is this issue of, oh, we're destroying the profession internally here. We're, we're not going to have opportunities for staff. And I challenge you to think the opposite way. I think this presents offshoring presents an opportunity to give staff here in the United States, a much more enriching and fast tracked career. I'll explain what I mean by that. Typically an accounting progression is you're going to do kind of like this slumming work for a little while. Like I'm going to do data entry. I'm going to do the annoying 1040 prep. I'm going to do the reconciling transactions for several years. Then I'll get enough experience. Maybe I can be like a senior or a manager, depending on your firm structure. I'll start getting a little more higher level technical work. And then maybe after two years of being that level, so I'm five years in, I can start managing clients and I can start doing more of the detail review. And, and that's like this five to seven year process to start getting to what I think is actually the interesting part of accounting, which is training people, mentoring them, um, helping build a practice and think about it that way. When we have offshore staff, we found that they really thrived in an environment where there are clear tasks, clear feedback loops, there's repeatable patterns they could get into, grooves, things that met. And then we had some people that really love the really funky, messy projects. So perfect. You equip people based on their skill sets. But what we found was we could hire better, fewer, and uh, we could hire fewer, better staff here in the United States pay them more and give them responsibilities that were interesting, managing, reviewing, client contact way faster with an offshore model, AKA, yeah, we don't hire 10 new staff anymore and have them all do QuickBooks reconciliations or prepare 1040s. What we do is we hire four staff, we pay them better, and we say, you're going to be overseeing a couple of interns overseas, or you're going to be doing basic review of their data entry, again, lower risk projects. And what we found was that they enjoyed that work a lot more than saying, I have to go through three years of data entry to get any sort of development. And where you typically lose talented staff is there. They say, Hey, I'm one year in, I'm really capable. And I have to do two more years before I can start doing things I know I can. Whereas with the offshore model, I found that often you have your superstars excited because they advance quickly. They get to take on responsibilities as ready, not once a spot above them has moved up. Yes, it turned out really, really positively in my experience for staff here in the U.S. and staff overseas. Those are those are both uh, great points. The first one on the uh, the way you're using those entry level hires, I think that's really important. And I and I've had some conversations with this because I I came into the field with zero accounting experience and went straight from that to firm owner, right? So I I I, I but a lot do this, right? Like if. If you think about the stay-at-home moms that turn into bookkeepers, and now all of a sudden, like they're they they're owning and running a bookkeeping firm, and within a couple of years, they might have employees. They might have right. So like they go straight from you know stay-at-home mom to accounting firm owner, right? Maybe they only do bookkeeping, but still, it's an accounting firm that they're that they're owning and operating. And you know, I I had that trajectory. I, I did tax and I got the EA license before I really started bringing on clients. But like, it's, it's so relatively easy, almost too easy in some ways, but in other ways, it's so relatively easy to skip all of 
the getting experience, working for a firm, going through the recruitment process, going through the internship process, you don't actually have to do that. So when I've talked to firm owners about uh, job applications, for example, like they're trying to write up a job description for an ad for a new hire. And I, I remind them like your competition is not other firms trying to hire that candidate. Your competition is that candidate saying, to heck with this. I'm just going to go open my own firm, right? And keep all the profit myself, right? That's yeah. your real competition. You've got to make your job more exciting than firm ownership, right? Just going out on your own. Um, and so, you know, I think that's really important. And, and that's going to push us even more to think about where do we find labor in these ways that aren't typical, right? That we've been doing. The other one is, I think this conversation about uh, wage disparity across geography or, you know, differences in cost of living. We already started having some of that. You saw some of that pop up when we shifted to work from home during COVID because employers started mm. saying, wait, if you're working from home and you don't have to commute into your office in you know, downtown Manhattan, or you don't have to commute into your office in LA, right? Why am I paying you the same wage? You don't have to pay for the commute anymore. You don't have to pay to live in the suburbs. You know, you're, you're living in a rural place that cost of living is half what it is where my office is. Why should I pay you the same as I always have? So we're already in that mindset of, you know, there should be some relationship between cost of living and what I'm actually paying you. We just need to take that on a global level instead of just a national level, like you say. So I think that's somewhere that our minds should already be if they're not there already. One of the interesting things that that's on my mind that Jeremy, you touched on a couple of minutes ago was just the supply of labor that we have onshore. And that's been really difficult even pre pandemic. And the trends there are not good. They're known to not be good. And I'm reminded of a conversation that I had at Engage a couple months ago with an offshore partner who basically supplies uh, tax talent from India. And he said to me, which is, has stuck with me, you know, look, at some point, everybody's going to have to offshore, but you just don't realize it yet. And that really kind of struck a chord with yeah. me because of all of these factors, we can't pay, we can only pay so much because the pricing in the market is only going to bear so much so fast. And so, you know, at some point the economics don't work out and the supply of labor is not so great in the U S so we got, you know, we got to do something. We've got all these competing factors. It's, it's so true. And I don't know the hangup. I, I, I had to fight against it internally. Um, and it's been, I think it's uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Like going to India was one of the coolest and wildest experiences. And it's so outside of my cultural norm that it was uncomfortable. Like that's the way I describe it. If you travel to the Philippines or to India, you know, like Europe is like, oh, this is kind of familiar. Like it's like nicer buildings than us, but kind of familiar. And then you go other places. And that's what I loved about it. I was like, oh, you're outside of your cultural context. It's time to learn. It's time to pay attention. Uh, I was so grateful for my amazing coworkers that guided me through that, shared their culture with me. Uh, just like they knew I was a foodie. So they just gave me like the food tour of Mumbai, which was amazing and just really took me under their wing and, and shared their city with me. It was, it was awesome, but it's, yeah, it's understand that the world is different and there's big cultural differences, but it's, it's the future I really think. And so it's a question of how you do it, what you're going to do with it, as opposed to like, do I have to do this? I, I just don't think there's enough people coming into the CPA industry. I think that the facts support that, like enrollments in accounting programs are declining, CPAs are retiring. Um, so we have to ask some hard questions, I think, about what the future of this industry looks like. Absolutely. Well, this has been a far ranging conversation for sure. And I'm sure very helpful for a lot of firm owners, definitely helpful for myself. 
so Michael, if we had to distill this conversation down to three to five key points or tips, what would they be? Yeah. First one is get your firm's house in order as it were before, before offshoring. So this is something I love and I, I want to tweet about it more and just create more content around it, but I love building processes and templates. So that's the first one is make sure your processes are clear. Do you know how you're going to delegate work? Do you know how you're going to follow up on work? Is there a clear process for new hires to follow? That's step one. Step two is I think ask yourself, can I commit to, to mentoring and giving a person overseas a really good work experience? Um, Cause you don't want to just hire. And this, this is again, onshore versus offshore. It doesn't really apply, but it's, it's harder offshore. It's, it just requires more intentionality. So ask yourself, am I committed to making this person a member of my team? I want them to feel like a member of my team. I'm going to support them like a member of a team sitting next to me. That's the second part. And then third, I would really look at your organization's workflow and ask what are the best tasks for me to offload immediately. I, I think of like easy to teach repetitive tasks are the first and best ones to go there. Um, so document filing inside of a template binder, drafting engagement letters, um, uploading templates into systems, you know, standardizing naming conventions. Those are all really, really good tasks. Just even filing things in the correct folder for pieces you can't do automatically. Uh, those are all good starts. So think about what work you're going to assign to that person. Um, and then four, just try it if you possibly can, and just be willing to be uncomfortable in that process uh, and make sure that you give it time to really fully, um, to really fully materialize as, as a really benefit. I'd say give it a year, like give it a year and it should be running really well after a year, but it would, it's probably going to take a year of transition to get fully in and on board and it might go way faster than that, but you won't be disappointed. So get your house in order, get your templates, standardized trainings, all that in order. Second, I hope I'm putting these right order. I'm probably not. Make sure that you're committed to making them feel like a part of your team. And then three, figure out, uh, what, what, what areas are best for you to actually outsource. And, uh, that are those standardized pieces that'll make sense to send there. That's awesome. Well, Michael, we appreciate you coming back on to the show and being our first ever repeat guest. This has been a great conversation. We definitely say thank you for helping us unpack this, this topic. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. It's been a blast. Awesome. Good deal. Thanks again, Michael. Thank you, Chris. This has been the CPA Advisory Show. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. Hey, it's Jeremy. Thanks for watching the CPA Advisory Show here on YouTube. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe like, and leave us a comment. We'll probably read your comment on the air. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at CPA Advisory Show. And if you have an idea for a topic or guest you'd like to see, email us at host at CPA Advisory Show.com. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time.